Welcome back, everybody, to Christ in Kingdom. This is the podcast where we talk about all things Reformed theology, biblical theology, apologetics, and a list of many, many more. I'm joined by Pastor Emilio Ramos of Heritage Grace. How's it going, Emilio? Uh, it's going really great, Ryan. It's good to be with you again. Excited for another episode of Christ and Kingdom. And I'm sure we're going to have a lot of great things to talk about today. Absolutely. Or even more specifically, my favorite topic, biblical theology. Let's just jump right into it. Oh, yes. Because biblical theology, we can go on for years. We may not... This, this episode might be three hours long before we're, before we're done. So biblical theology... <laughs> I would love for you to do, and we did this in episode one. If you haven't heard episode one, please go back and take a look. But we did a brief summary of it. If you could just recap, what is biblical theology? And then let's just dive into some of the major themes there that you've outlined for us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, biblical theology, um, as you know, we talked a little bit in our introduction of our um, of our podcast is is really a, a, a particular branch of theology. It's just like you have systematic theology, you have you have historical theology and practical theology. Biblical theology is an actual department of theology. Okay, it's not just the way to study scripture. It's not just a subject of scripture, but more appropriately, it is itself its own discipline or branch of theology. And in many, uh, for example, many seminaries, that will be its own. Uh, that'll be its own uh, discipline and its own field, right? Of, of of theology. But what we're doing in biblical theology, or what it's concerned with, it's concerned with exegeting the Bible. And trying to understand how the Bible uh, goes together organically, how, how it is conveying one ultimate message. Um, then, then we have to define one ultimate message about what. And so some people would say, well, biblical theology is best understood in terms of, well, it's a, it's a holistic theology about the new creation or about the, the, the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, you know, something like that. So that's really what we're, what we're thinking about when we consider what biblical theology is, it's an exegetical discipline that looks at God's revelation in an organic way as all of it is telling us something about the central story of Scripture. Um, And then we have to kind of fill out, well, what is that central story? I would say that something like Jesus Christ and his everlasting kingdom or the kingdom of God as it is achieved through Jesus Christ, his, his person and his work. And, uh, and, but there's so many different aspects of biblical theology of what makes biblical theology, biblical theology, if that makes sense. It does. And just just to clarify this, can you quickly summarize the difference between biblical theology versus systematic theology? And I'm anticipating that that might be a question from our listeners, because it was a question that I had a couple years ago when I had first been introduced. I had never even said the words biblical theology before. So when I heard the words biblical theology, I was just thinking, oh, systematic theology. Can you just explain the difference real quick? Absolutely. When when you're thinking about systematic theology, systematic theology is the attempt to take the central tenets of of Christendom, of Christianity, that t- take the central doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, and so when you open the systematic theology, you may begin with prolegomena, doctrine of God, doctrine of man, doctrine of salvation, things like that. And then all of the Bible is used to try to inform 
that one doctrine. And so in that process, we're not asking, how does that verse belong to the entire story of Scripture? We're asking, how does that one verse, for example, apply to that one doctrine of Scripture, let's say Christology or the deity of Christ or something like that. And so that's a very scientific, almost a catalog kind of approach to the Bible. And systematic theology is absolutely necessary. It's what we base our catechisms on. It's what we base, uh, you know, our our ability to um, to systematize our thinking about essential Christian doctrine, like the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, uh, biblical theology, on the other hand, however, doesn't begin with a doctrine. It begins by looking at the Bible supremely as history. So the Bible is first and foremost a book of history, and that's the real difference, is that while in systematic theology, you're really not taking into account the historical progression of any passage of Scripture, but in biblical theology, that's exactly what the approach is, is the development of Scripture as a particular history uh, of, of really of the self-disclosure of God himself. And so um, maybe to give us, uh, to, to even emphasize that further, maybe I can just read to us something from Gerhardus Voss. Wonderful. Uh, Ger- yeah, Gerhardus Voss, uh, you know, is known as the father of, of biblical theology. And his book, Biblical Theology, is the classic work that has ever been written on the subject of biblical theology, really a revolution in the history of theology, very revolutionary. But this is what Gerhardus Voss said biblical theology was. He says, biblical theology rightly defined is nothing else than the exhibition of the organic progress of supernatural revelation in its historic continuity and multiformity. Now, um, that's a small, um, that's a small little definition, but it's jam packed. And people were like, I need to hear that over and over and over again. And what I did is I took Voss's definition and I broke it down into the essential components, the essential components that you can find from that definition. And what you get from that, Ryan, is four kind of essential things. Number one, there's the display of biblical theology, because he says biblical theology is nothing else than the exhibition of the organic progress of revelation. And so the exhibition means that this is this is uh, theologians who are attempting to display the revelation of God in an organic way. He also says it's a it's a progress, right? It's an organic progress of revelation. And so this leads us to number two, the progress of biblical revelation or biblical theology. And then we see that that progress unfolds along historical lines. Then he also talks about the historical continuity of biblical theology. And that's what I like to call the historical unity of biblical theology, that all the scripture is united. It speaks with one voice, contributes to one main idea, one central theme, the purpose of God in Christ in the Bible. But then at the very end, he also describes it as multiformity, which means that there are so many different components in that history of revelation. And so what, what Voss is really getting at there is that God reveals himself in different ways at different times to different people, and sometimes for a different purpose. And so he can reveal himself through an act, an event, let's say the Exodus, 
And then sometimes God reveals himself directly through some kind of theophany, let's say a burning bush, or even a vision, or maybe in a more personal way in, 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 in sending the angel of the Lord. And then, of course, as we're thinking about the different ways in which God has revealed himself in this progress of revelation, supremely, he has revealed himself through the incarnate son himself. And so that's just, these are, those are some of the kind of 10,000 foot view components of what biblical theology is all about. I, lo- I love how Christ-centered biblical theology is as well. And my, my first taste at this was years ago. I didn't even realize it, but I was reading through John 3, uh, John 3, right? Very popular chapter in the Bible. And uh, it was a MacArthur sermon, I think, that, that I, was, I was reading, reading or hearing him, him preach about it. And he was referring back to numbers when Jesus was saying, just as the son, is, son of man is lifted up in the wilderness, or just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that all who believe in him uh, will be saved. And so can you just talk about, talk about a little bit more of just how it is so Christ-centered, how there's the <clears throat> types and shadows. And, and I always go there first because it's just my, my favorite part. I can't believe the Lord did that. I mean, I believe it, but I'm just saying it's just so phenomenal that he communicates and, and types and shadows. Can we just talk about types and shadows in the context of it being Christ-centered? Yeah, there is a book written, uh, a collection of authors actually writing on limited atonement. Uh, the mm-hmm. book is from heaven and from heaven he came and sought her. And, um, the forward there is by J.I. Packer. And J.I. Mm-hmm. Packer mentioned how that, um, that, that our faith is Trinitarian, but that in scripture, in the revelation of God, um, it is explicitly Christocentric. And that that is no that is no threat to our trinitarian uh, religion, but that it it is absolutely necessary for the purpose of redemption that the Bible be revealed in such christocentric fashion and 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 that's exactly right uh, Ryan is that when you look at the Bible it's amazing how christocentric it is you begin at the very beginning you begin in Genesis chapter one two and three the section that I mean we'll have to do an entire episode just on this this issue here. But, you know, when you look at protology, right, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you know, when I've taught extensively on this, uh, years ago, I did a series of Sunday school sessions at at our church, and all on protology. It took me months. I mean, we must have been there for five months just teaching Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And, you know, I I always like to remind us that, that Genesis is written for Jesus, not for Darwin, because uh, as evangelicals and as Christians today, we typically go to the first few chapters of, of Genesis to try to immediately engage in some sort of apologetics against evolution or paganism or something like that. And again, I want to be very clear. I think Genesis has that capacity. But when we're asking the question, what did Moses write and why did he write it? Um, fundamentally, Genesis was written for Christ. It was written to display who he is. It was written to display uh, the nature of his uh, deity as creator, uh, that he is the word that was there in the beginning. And then furthermore, that he is He is the very wisdom of God that is acting in creation, as Proverbs 8 tells us. And and in the book of, uh, uh, in the New Testament, rather, repeatedly we encounter 
Christ the creator. Uh, so John 1, 1, right, through 4, I mean, it was through uh, the Son that everything is made. Uh, Colossians in chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, we are explicitly told, again, that everything has come into being through him. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, again, Jesus is the creator of all things, and everything was made for him. So it's really remarkable. And then, of course, as you keep going through uh, the Genesis prologue, then you're encountering the concepts of the image of God, the concepts of the mediator in chapter 3, the seed of the woman, and on and on and on we we go to, to show that in various instances, the person of Christ is there, and then comprehensively, as we're asking the question, what is Genesis 1, 2, and 3 about? It's, it's, it's no less than the complete and total package of the kingdom of God in Christ. So the very thing that was accomplished through Jesus Christ in terms of his work on the cross and what that means for the kingdom of God in heaven was the very thing that was potential and set forth for Adam uh, in in the original uh, situation there under the covenant of works. And so it's just remarkable. But then, you know, as you keep going down the line of scripture, at every instance, you have these Christocentric types and shadows, as you mentioned, and that all of them in some way or in some form direct us to the person and work of Jesus Christ, whether it's the festivals of Israel you know, uh, one of the festivals that celebrates, uh, let's say, for example, the, the the Feast of Booths and how God tabernacles with his people. Well, we're told in John chapter 1, verse, uh, you know, uh, verse 14 and following that Christ himself tabernacles with us. You know, um, he, he, he Jesus repeatedly points to the various feasts as direct and directing everybody towards himself as the very fulfillment of those feasts. Right. Um, as Israel celebrates the harvest, we know that the we know that the the high priest or the priests would engage in different rituals like waving palm branches, announcing the arrival of a harvest time. Right. And that was ultimately indicative of the resurrection of Jesus and the final resurrection. Incredible. So if you just go down the line of all the different types of shadows, whether it's the sacrificial system, whether it's the priesthood, whether it's the building of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the veil that was, that was built, uh, all of those, um, all of those different Old Testament features ultimately point us to Christ. Matter of fact, um, it was Gerhardus Voss himself in another book uh, called uh, The Eschatology of the Old Testament that tells us that even as Israel is living out its earthly existence, the heavenly reality loomed right over them. So that what they were doing on earth in their historical situation was a reflection <laughs> of heavenly realities that pertain to Christ and the true Israel of God and the kingdom of God, which is absolutely fascinating. So this is the, this is kind of the comprehensive depth of biblical theology is that it's so deep. It's so wide. It's just, it's, it really is the, it's the reason why people write books like uh, David Murray, who wrote the book Jesus on Every Page, because they start realizing that no matter where you are in the Bible, somehow, whatever you're reading, whatever context you're in, it has some sort of direct correlation to either the person or the work of Jesus Christ. So, absolutely stunning. And yeah. 
you know, that's the central theme of central themes. And before we move on to the other themes there, just speaking of, of books and recommendations, one that you always recommended to me, although I didn't even think you knew I bought it at the time. The first book I read, A Heritage Grace, was The Unfolding Mystery. Is that a great starting point to learn more? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you mentioned Christ on every page, but those two books, would you say for our listeners, if they want to start looking at how the Bible really is about Christ on every page and they want to supplement their reading of the Bible, would you start there with those two? I would. Um, I would definitely, I, I would have Christians read Edmund Clowney's The Unfolding Mystery at least once a year for at least a little while until you really, <laughs> you know, until you just reflect and, and, and get caught yeah. up in the story because that really is what the Bible is, right? The Bible is a story. The Bible is history. And as history, you're reading a saga of what goes on. And for Edmund Clowney in his book, there's a couple of things that are so important about that book. Number one, of course, everything is pointing you ultimately to Christ and to his work and to the way that God is sort of unfolding all of his covenant purposes and things like that. But also what Edmund Clowney does a fascinating job of showing is how you arrive at these various antichrist crisis. Now, that's more of a Meredith Klein term, but but it, it just reminds you that it, a narrative, for example, Jacob and Esau, where Esau is seeking to kill Jacob for his treachery and his deception, right? And Esau, uh, you know, is, is uh, on the other side of the river waiting for his brother. And Jacob says, hey, we're going to send out a lookout. We're going we're gonna to send messengers. We're going to go see if, if Esau means to kill me, <laughs> you know, and then we'll, we'll go from there kind of thing. And it's like, why does the author taking so much time to focus on the potential that Esau hates his brother so much and would want to kill him. Well, it's because the promises are made to Jacob and the, and the, and the covenant purpose of God continues through him. So if Esau destroys his brother, he destroys the covenants. He destroys the promise. So that can't happen. So you're, you're reading a history where an antichrist crisis has erupted on the pages of scripture, a crisis that can literally undermine the very kingdom purpose of God in Christ. And that's why it's so central uh, to the story. But I mean, that's just, that's just, just kind of a small insight into what Edmund Clowney's book can do for you. But just so phenomenal, right? Even that was a fresh reminder of the ongoing promise of the Lord that was made in the garden, right? Uh, and all the way throughout history leading up to Christ and forevermore. So uh, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't look at those things or hear those things and not think this is absolutely marvelous. Stunning. Stunning. Yeah. To say yeah, amen. Okay. Christ being our central theme our theme of themes in, in biblical theology is just so paramount. But there are other themes, too, that we need to tap into to get the fullest picture here. So from the new creation, the temple, the covenant, the kingdom, the glory of God, can you tap into some of those and unpack them a little bit when it comes to these themes? Yeah, no, for sure. And I would just say, too, uh, Ryan, maybe before jumping into that, let me just make another book recommend, because a lot of times we're recommending Edmund Clowney or we're telling people to read Voss. But really, um, people should also read G.K. Beale. Uh, he has a small book, God Dwells Among Us, and that's a wonderful, wonderful introduction to biblical theology and ties directly into our first theme here as we think about biblical theology having to do with the new creation. Uh, but Beale 
really, that, that really is Dr. Beale's central thesis in the entirety of biblical theology, that the Bible is moving us from creation to new creation in Christ. And so that at every instance, what we're seeing is we're seeing, um, the promise that a new creation is coming, whether it's, you know, after the flood. And after the flood, you have the creational mandate recapitulated, as it were, repeated, given to Noah. The covenant promise is given to Noah. And then Noah, in a sense, constitutes a new creation. The same thing with the Exodus, when the people uh, go through the, the valley of the shadow of death, as it were, as they cross the sea, and God makes a path of life for them, and they go on to the other side and take possession of the land of Canaan after a time of wandering, it's like they're coming into a new creation. As a matter of fact, during the year of Jubilee, the people were allowed, or they were really, they were required to allow the land to go back to its original primal state. In other words, the plants were to grow wild again, and you weren't to trim the bushes and, and things like that. Why? Because God wanted the people to go through the ritual of understanding that what he had prepared for them was a new creation, that the land on earth symbolized the possession of the land in heaven. And then when you look at what's going on in the New Testament, that's exactly what it represents. And we are told that explicitly in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 13 to 16, which that in and of itself is a future episode, because that is a classicist Texas uh, Texas classic is that that is a crux interpretum right there for biblical theology. That passage right there is so crucial. Or Hebrews 11, really, I mean, obviously, beginning in verse, uh, you know, eight, nine, is we begin to encounter the story of Abraham and how Abraham is a sojourner and what they did by faith as they trusted in God and, and, and they, and they obeyed God and going out into a different country and, the author of Hebrews says that they were looking for a different country. They were, they were looking for a country of their own. Again, Abraham in being given the promise of the land is actually being given an eschatological promise of the land to come, of the kingdom of God to come, of the new creation. And that's exactly what Hebrews tells us. Um, I know that for people, if you've done any study in the general epistles like Hebrews and Peter and James and first, second John, third John, and, and there is sort of this general epistle theology. Uh, several commentators point this out that within those letters, there's kind of an intra theology just within the community of those letters. And you can see that play out. Uh, as you go from a, a, a passage like Hebrews 11, 13 to 16, and then Second Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. It's kind of the same thing. It's because we're waiting for the world to be shaken. We're waiting for the world to be dissolved. We're waiting for the dissolution of all things. We are waiting for what can be shaken to be shaken. We're waiting for the elements to melt with a fervent heat. And what does Hebrews and Peter say? With one voice, we are looking to a new creation. And so uh, it's just remarkable, but there's that, that eschatological idea of a new creation. But in the New Testament, what becomes very kind of, um, uh, kind of a wild card here is that that new creation that is reserved for the age to come, that begins redemptively in Christ. 
so that we are constituted a new creation, so that we have been renewed, Scripture says, so that we are being conformed back into the image of our Creator, as it says there. And there's so many passages that teach this, right? There's, uh, you know, Second Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen. There is Second um, uh, Corinthians chapter five, verse seventeen, new creation. There's Ephesians uh, chapter four, verse twenty-four. Colossians chapter three, verse ten. All the language of being renewed back into the image of God, so that this new creation idea is now being read back into the present time through Jesus Christ. And that is so central. And Ryan, you know, uh, that becomes so important, man, for people to interpret Scripture. <laughs> because if you don't have a Christocentric um, kind of realized eschatology, what you will have is a truly over-realized eschatology. What you will say is that what's being inaugurated today is not is not found redemptively in Christ, but you're going to start thinking that the cosmic realities of the age to come are being realized here and now, and then that amounts to an exaggerated, overheated, um, overrealized eschatology that God never promised. And so, you know, uh, this is directly addressed uh, in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, that church had a hyper-realized eschatology. They exaggerated how much eschatology was already available. It's, it's kind of funny, right? Because the same, you know, First, Second Corinthians, the very book that's telling us about realized eschatology in Christ, that we're a new creation, is the very book that's also pulling in the reins for people that have too much of a realized eschatology as they think that the new creation is actually being realized here and now. And uh, and Paul tells the people there, look, don't think that you're already a king, you're already reigning, you're already rich, almost like you've already come into the, your eschatological reward. Not yet. You're not there yet, you know, because Paul says, you know, you might be a king and you might be reigning, but we're fools for Christ. We've been exhibited as last of all as men condemned to death. We're, we're, the, we're the scum of the world. And you guys think you're already reigning, uh, you know, so there you go. That's where you can get imbalanced with inaugurated eschatology and, and things like that. But but to some of these themes that you mentioned, I mean, are really important. I don't know if you wanted to add to that, but um, those are really crucial things with the new creation. Tell me if I'm on base with this question, but does the year of Jubilee help support even further the idea of pilgrim theology, right? Just that, that renewal that needs to come to us, not necessarily a new, uh, renewal of over-realized eschatology that can be found um, in other eschatological positions. Is that an accurate thing to say or might far-reaching? No, no, I think you're right. I, th I think there's a, there's a very... There's a very interesting theology in Jubilee where part of the Jubilee uh, celebration was to celebrate liberty, uh, freedom, right? The freedom of the captives. And we know for certain that that has abiding, uh, you know, relevance in salvation, redemption, and in Christ and the kingdom of God, because that very thing is what Jesus says he came to do. And, you know, looking at a passage like Luke chapter four, that's exactly what's being quoted there. He came to set the captives free to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And so that 
that idea of that glorious freedom that we have in Christ, that is all redemptive. But as we are told in Romans chapter 8, that glorious freedom and that glorious redemption that we have now personally through through Christ is what the entire cosmic order is waiting for. Uh, so the Jubilee is already not yet. <laughs> so I think it fits the perfect pattern of eschatology. Amazing. We have to talk yeah. about the temple. Definitely have to talk oh, about yeah. the temple when we come to biblical theology. So this is this is a major theme. And I would just love for you to kind of unpack again in summary form why the temple is so important when we talk about biblical theology, perhaps even related to Hebrews 7, 8, and 9, and, and you know, where uh, we're talking about how Christ enters the, the original into the heavenly places and so on. I mean, th- there's so many different ways we could go. I've recently been reading Hebrews 7, yeah. 8, and 9 nonstop, so take it wherever you want. Oh, good. good. No, that's good for you, brother. Those are, those are great passages to study. Uh, but yeah, the temple is, ironically, G.K. Beale, who also focuses large on the new creation, is also really the expert on <laughs> biblical theology and the temple. I mean, his IVP book, The Temple, if you have not read that, if people have not spent real time reading that, I mean, that is an absolute must read for biblical theology. And as a matter of fact, uh, G.K. Beale, Lord willing, uh, as of right now, anyway, he'll be uh, with us uh, next year. I think next September, he'll be with us to teach us uh, directly on the temple and the mission of God as he's going to do a whole eschatology for us and pilgrim theology for us uh, surrounding the theme of, of the temple, which is amazing. So we get, we're going to get several hours of Dr. Beale teaching us uh, from that theology. But, but here, here's an interesting thing. We don't have time to get into all the details of temple theology here, but mm-hmm. It brings up a very, a very uh, important hermeneutic. And that is to say that what you're seeing on earth in the building of the temple is two things. Okay. There is in the building of the physical tabernacle and then later, of course, the temple. There you have both a reenactment going on and you have a pre enactment. So let me explain what I mean by that. You have first a reenactment. A reenactment of what? Well, you have a reenactment of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is actually the original prototypical or protological uh, temple sanctuary, right? Uh, that, that, is the, that is the first holy realm. That is the first place where the presence of God dwells in the midst of his people. And so it's not surprising to read, in a sense, priestly language that is associated with the temple, uh, Adam's task to guard the garden, you know, those kinds of things. The priests are told in Numbers chapter 3, they have to guard the temple, et cetera, et cetera. And then when the temple structure is rebuilt, what is woven into the design of the temple, both the tabernacle and the temple, even the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies? Well, what, what's what's um, what's woven and what's what makes up the tapestry there are all Edenic themes. It's a paradisical image that is found within the holy place, within the tabernacle. Uh, the people of God were to build the tabernacle patterned after the original sanctuary paradise of God in the Garden of Eden. 
And so that the temple is reenacting uh, the creation events, just marvelous. But it is also pre-enacting, right, something greater, that the earthly temple is itself pointing forward to a greater priesthood, a greater sacrifice, a greater presence of God in the midst of its people, which, of course, was all fully realized through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, as you mentioned already in Hebrews chapter 8, it is Christ who goes into the holy place, not the one on earth, Hebrews chapter 8, not the, not the sanctuary on earth, but he goes into the heavenly reality. He, uh, Hebrews uh, 8, 5 is very, very um, uh, specific to say that the earthly priests, they serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. So this tells us, uh, brother, which a lot of Christians don't think deeply enough about, but this tells us about the typological construction of the Bible. Um, the Bible orders all things on earth to be patterned after the things in heaven, not the opposite way around. The things in heaven do not follow the things on earth. That is a that's a perversion of the typological structure of of theology and of of the way that th- the way that God made and the way that God designed things. You remember what happens here in Hebrews eight uh, after we are told about this typology and about Jesus going into the true tabernacle and and those kinds of things. Uh, the author of Hebrews reminds us that this is in keeping with the Exodus event where Moses on the mountain is told to construct the tabernacle after the pattern that was shown to him. That pattern, the book of Hebrews is now telling us, was about the heavenly things. And so... uh and so w- w- what what ends up happening as we think about the temple of God is that the temple of God is preparing us so that we, um, in Christ, we go into the very, uh, if I can use a technical term here, we go into the archetype, we go into the original, we go into the, to the heavenly reality itself, we go into the throne, we go into the sanctuary of God. Uh, uh, what, is, um, what does uh, Revelation chapter 2 say? We go into the paradise of God. And of course, that's all talking about heaven. And so it's just remarkable. When you start seeing all of these things, you start realizing that when you're studying these Old Testament passages about the earthly copies, um, from there, you you there have the content see here here's the here's a beautiful thing that we have to observe Gerhardus Voss is is very um explicit on this in his book on biblical theology that when we talk about types and shadows right types and shadows in the old testament that these this these things are not just bare symbolism that's very important we don't want to reduce the types and shadows of the old testament to nothing more than just lifeless memorials okay they, they they these are these are thriving realities these these are symbols that actually possess 
right? The potential to be the means of grace that God ordained for us through these types and shadows to see the application of God's redemption and his grace and the realization of his kingdom. So uh, it's just encouraging because we can go to these Old Testament texts and we can just, we can bring all the gospel reality that we know as New Covenant, New Testament believers to bear upon the ancient text of the Old Testament. So it's just remarkable. Yeah, there's there's no shortage of content that we could discuss on this. When As I listen to you talk, there's so many different questions that pop into my mind that I want to ask and uncover for the rest of our listeners here. So I think, I think what we're going to have to do to make sure we can cover all that we want in this episode is revisit biblical theology again and again and again. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so rest assured, if you're listening right now, and you're like, I, I have questions. I want to dive into this and that and, and get more. We'll come back and revisit this on, on the podcast, but there's some other really important themes that I want to get to before we wrap up for the day. And really, it comes to the idea of how biblical theology impacts our theology overall, right? Our theology as uh, in, in other disciplines and areas of study, eschatology could be one, covenant theology, um, soteriology, let's maybe focus on those three for a second. Uh, in fact, why don't we do eschatology since that's been the topic of our Sunday school lessons for the past five months or so. How does it inform eschatology? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think one way that biblical theology directly informs our eschatology is is hermeneutically or hermeneutics wise, right? Uh, that we, we want to approach our eschatology with a redemptive historical hermeneutic that says that, uh, what we're doing in scripture as we interpret scripture is we're, we're tracing God's redemptive purpose. And we're reminded that that purpose is historical. And so we're going to have instances of historical fulfillment of various promises, right? So that redemptive historical hermeneutics is seeing that eschatology is is often both near and far. And you can see, uh, for example, as we're, we've been going through the book of Isaiah as a church, you can see how much of the historical situation that Isaiah was going through in the 7th century, let's say, had immediate impact on the people of that day, but also it promised a certain degree of fulfillment in the in the successive generations those that let's say came back from captivity okay as they would rebuild their city as they would rebuild Jerusalem they would come into an eschatological realization they would come into a fulfillment of certain promises that Isaiah is talking about god's going to secure a city that god's going to you know restore the fortunes of his people that they're you know they're 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 going to be jubilant they're going to be full of worship and those kinds of things but we know also as, as biblical theology shows us, right, that the purpose of God is all organically connected so that the historical situation of Isaiah, let's say, is not untethered to the eschatological fulfillment of the distant future. And so you find in Isaiah language that just doesn't fit in the seventh century. Um, it just doesn't happen. Um, you know, there, there, Never, ever, ever did Isaiah realize Isaiah chapter 2. No more war. 
uh, right? The, 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 the weapons of our warfare have been, you know, turned into pruning hooks and, you know, those kinds of things. It may have seemed that you could have been standing in the 8th century BC, you could have been standing, let's say, uh, and even further on, you know, as the decree to rebuild Jerusalem went forth and Jerusalem indeed became, began to be rebuilt and the temple was rebuilt, you would have thought that during that that small time of peace, hey, look, it's exactly what Isaiah was telling us was going to happen. There's no more war. We're, we're safe from our enemies. But of course, that is never going to exhaust the eschatological timescale, okay? That awaits the eschaton. And that's beautiful because that one that tells us is that, again, all of Scripture is Christian Scripture. What Isaiah was talking about actually has to do with me in the 21st century as we await the time that Isaiah was talking about, the true and total fulfillment of those national blessings, cosmic blessings, uh, geopolitical blessings, you know, all of those things at the arrival of the eschaton. And, uh, and, and, you know, at that point, Ryan, when we're talking eschatology, we're going to disagree with different perspectives. We're going to disagree with pre-mill theology. The premillennialists will want to say, well, yeah, all of those promises about a time of prosperity and salvation and the nations are going to come to Jerusalem, that's waiting for the millennium. Okay, and that's the way that you would think of your premillennial. Your, 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 your future hope really is the millennium. If you're post-millennial, then you believe your future hope is sometime before Jesus returns, that eventually the world will see incredible uh, salvation. Um, some post-millennialists teach a virtual universalism, that basically, uh, before re- the return of Jesus, pretty much everyone will be saved. Um, there will, there'll, there'll probably be very, very few unbelievers, okay? And even among post-millennial folks, there's, there's disagreement on that. Um, some post-millennial uh, uh, theologians would say that, that in the very, very, very end before Jesus returns, Revelation chapter 20, for example, verses 8 to 10, is teaching us that there is still some sort of great end-time apostasy that's coming. And then some uh, some postmillennialists say no, uh, that 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 also is past. Uh, that refers to something else. Well, um, obviously, I disagree with both both positions for for a reason. But ultimately, what we see in uh, in eschatology and biblical theology is that God really is structured the whole world only in two stages. Right? There's what's going on presently, and then what's going to happen in the age to come. So I think that's the best way uh, to look at how eschatology and biblical theology kind of intersect in various points. But there's so much there. I mean, you can do biblical theology in different aspects of eschatology, like we talked about the resurrection. The resurrection is itself its own biblical theology. It is itself its own biblical theology as the promise of life is given, I mean, in, in, in types and shadows and, and, and the celebration of Israel's festivals to the promises of the king not being allowed to die and suffer decay. I mean, so many different ways that resurrection life uh, is promised typologically in the Old Testament, for example, and fulfilled through 
through Christ. But that's those are just some of the ways I'm thinking about eschatology. Fascinating. Two more quick summaries. I'm going to ask you to do these pretty quick because we're running out of time. So covenant theology and soteriology, how does biblical theology inform or impact our overarching theology in those two critical areas? Well, I, I, you know, obviously we don't have time to develop covenant theology here, but but I would just say this, that there's a kind of biblical theology I think we need to be a, uh, a, we need to be aware of and we need to be careful. We, let me say this very, very clearly, maybe a little bit provocative here to say this, but biblical theology is not just about identifying patterns in the Bible that are fascinating and that point us to Jesus. That is not what biblical theology is really for. There's a real sense in which the best biblical theology is nothing other than covenant theology. That what we're seeing in the progression of God's redemptive work is nothing more than the unfolding of the covenant theology that we find in Scripture, as we see uh, that in the original uh, covenant of work situation, there Adam obviously fails to obey and fails to advance, and that what the rest of the Bible is all about is about a new Adam, a second Adam, a last Adam coming in, and in fact, obeying perfectly and advancing. That's covenant theology, but that's also biblical theology. And so we need to make sure that we situate all of our biblical theology within the rubric of covenant theology. So important. I mean, I can go on for 20, 30 minutes about that, but I don't want to take all our time. And then soteriology, um, I would just say for biblical theology, again, it's interesting to see a doctrine like regeneration. Regeneration, um, if you study it, let's say, in a systematic theology. A systematic theology is going to tell you, well, what does the word regeneration mean? What are some of the, you know, what are some of the parallels to regeneration? Okay, being born again. Okay, and being born anew. You know, uh, uh, being granted life. You know, all of these these kind of ideas. But biblical theology, again, is going to trace the concept of regeneration from the very beginning as Adam is imparted with the breath of God, because we go from the breath of God, right, in Genesis 2-7, let's say, to another instance of the breath of God <laughs> in second in 1 Corinthians 15, verse, uh, especially verse uh, 40, uh, 44, 45, 46, where there another breath is given uh, to the people of God. And so that regeneration being made alive by God really is an Adamic theme. It is a new creational idea. And so that's just one way that, that we can put even something like soteriology within the framework of what God is doing in his people historically and prophetically and eschatologically, right? Um, I would just like to make one qualification if I can. As we think about soteriology and biblical theology, we must understand, this affects everything I just said about eschatology, covenant theology, and now soteriology and biblical theology, and it's this, that in the Bible, eschatology precedes soteriology. The eschatological uh, issue, the eschatological program 
is first. It's primary. The Bible begins with eschatology and then moves to the redemptive order. And that is so important to, to understand in your theology that what we're looking at in Genesis chapter one and two originally is an eschatological program of how mankind in the spirit will advance to a higher form of life. Um, and, and, and that becomes absolutely uh, essential. I mean, again, we're introducing all these great ideas. We'll have to do just a comprehensive uh, episode on each one of these these themes. But yeah, I think that'll be a welcomed welcome received from from our audience because there's so much that I want to unpack. Even stuff that we said before on temple theology and and uh, and so on. So, is it fair to summarize <laughs> biblical theology as we bring this all to a close here? Just basically to remember that biblical theology stresses, above all, the Bible's a history book. It's a book of history. It's not just any history. It's the redemptive history and that focuses on the kingdom of God as it's, brought to its, as it's brought to its intended goal for the person and work of Christ. Um and that it's really about reading the Bible more organically or understanding that and then reading that Bible more organically. And what do you think? Is that, is that a fair way that you'd, you'd position this overall? Yeah, I, I actually think that's very helpful. Uh, the exactly the way that you worded it there. Um, I think is as believers, uh, you know, the more and more Christians view their Bible as history and that that history is absolutely important. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, how many times have we come into a historical section of the Old Testament? <laughs> Let's say somewhere in Chronicles or something, and we just kind of blow by that history because we're just like, I don't have time to read, you know, eight chapters on what happened with these two, three kings, you know, or something like that, right? But we we tend to think, well, history is kind of like the it's kind of like the um the hard facts that we have to get out of the way so that we can get to the real substance of things. But that is not what biblical theology asserts. What biblical theology is telling us is that that history is itself the revelation of God and that history is itself theological in nature it is not just factual it's not these are not just standalone facts that you know that are necessary to tell us what city they were in or what time period they lived but that all that history functions prophetically and has a purpose in god's plan and so absolutely brother i mean uh, biblical theology is all about reading the bible as god's historical account of his self disclosure and how he brings everything to to consummation through Jesus Christ. So yeah, I think I couldn't have said it better myself, brother. Awesome. We covered multiple things relative to biblical theology today. Anything that we didn't get a chance to unpack that you could summarize for us real quick that could either take someone down the path of studying this more in depth. We recommended some books, uh, maybe some topics that we just didn't quite develop because we didn't have time on this podcast just anything that you think yeah. you summarize here for us sure maybe just a progression um that i would give people that are like okay where do i start what do i do okay well i i would say this in order for you to fall in love with biblical theology you have to read edmund Clowney's book the unfolding mystery if you want 
if you want the foundations of biblical theology, you have to read Voss. You have to read Biblical Theology by Gerhardus Voss. It's not an easy read, but it's 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 completely worth it. Now, as we go from Voss, I would recommend two authors. First, I would recommend G.K. Beale. I would recommend that you get G.K. Beale, God Dwells Among Us. I would recommend that you get G.K. Beale, The Temple and the Mission of the Church, and that you would get his magnum opus, his big, uh, his big biblical theology of the New Testament, which is a big, massive tome. And the reason why you want that one is not maybe because you will read it cover to cover, but look, look for the scriptural references. Go to the scripture index so that you can find how does this scripture Right? How did Beale work in this text uh, with this issue? Right? And how important was this to Beale? And how did he fit it into his biblical theology? And then, after you've done that, understand something that is unique in biblical theology. What Gerhardus Voss was doing is a lot of polemics. People don't understand this. He was combating a lot of liberal. Uh, German higher criticism and things like that, that, that basically undermine the authority of the Bible and the inspiration of the Bible and the supernatural nature of the Bible. And so Voss did a lot of his biblical theology in a polemical way to defend the Bible against liberalism. Now, we're no longer really there, okay? It, we're not in Voss's context really anymore. But when you arrive at someone like Meredith Klein, there you have a theologian in Meredith Klein that's doing more biblical theology, how could we say this, uh, just unrestrained by the polemical task. He doesn't need to defend it against all these critics uh, so that Meredith Klein had a unique place in the history of biblical theology because Klein was more purely devoted to the actual work of biblical theology. And so I would not neglect Meredith Klein's work. So I would begin with Kingdom Prologue, and then I would read a book like Images of the Spirit, until at last you come to God, Heaven, and Harmageddon. And so hopefully that will be a useful path for people to really, really immerse themselves in true biblical theology. And one more, at the beginning you said Christ on every page. Who's the author? Christ oh, yeah, on every David, page? Yeah, David Murray. David Murray. That's a pretty easy yeah. read, right? Yeah. It's a very simple yeah. read. Um, you know, that book has come under a little bit of fire uh, from from kind of premillennial dispensational kind of, uh, of perspectives that they want to protect against allegorizing or over-spiritualizing the text. And certainly we understand that, but I don't think Murray really is trying to engage in that. I, I think he's just trying to draw out a good examples of how Jesus, uh, how, how it is, how Jesus himself uh, said that, he could be found in the Old Testament text. And Moses spoke of me, he says, John 5, that all the, you know, that beginning with Moses, the law and all the prophets, they wrote about him, you know, Luke 24. And of course, uh, in the book of Hebrews, you know, something like, 
Hebrews chapter 10, uh, in the volume of the book, it is written of him, you know, so, so those, those can, you know, and in Revelation, the spirit of prophecy is the spirit, you know, is the spirit of Christ. So, uh, you know, the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I mean, the, the prophetic, the prophetic, um, uh, enterprise is about Jesus. Amazing. Amazing indeed. Okay, we have plenty more. This is a, a mental note for both of us, Ramos, that we need to do more on biblical theology because there are a number of themes that we want to pa- unpack and go really deep with that I think will be very edifying to those who are not only getting started, but even to those who study biblical theology on, on a regular basis. So I'm excited to get into those. Our next episode is going to be about reform theology. And for many people, Reformed theology is synonymous with Calvinism, <laughs> but it is more than that. So yeah. just uh, maybe just give us a little taste of what we're going to cover next episode on Reformed theology. Oh, yeah. So in thinking about Reformed theology, uh, we want to definitely tackle the issue of, of, of having really a distinctly Reformed theology, um, because I think we're losing that. I think that what's going on today is that you have a lot of sort of hybrid positions that may be Calvinistic, but then the question really boils down to is what is Reformed anymore? What does it mean to be reformed? Does it mean to be a Calvinist? Does it mean to be a confessionalist? And does it mean to be a millennial? Does it mean you have to be a covenantalist? You know, I, I think that as we lose those kinds of concepts and those stakes in the ground, we're kind of losing what does it mean to be reformed and how is is it possible? I guess that's kind of the, the central burden of that of that idea for this podcast. But is it possible to have a distinctly reformed theology through and through that's the question that's going to be fun to unpack i'm looking forward to it Mm -hmm. pastor ramos thank you for joining us today very informative episode to our listeners out there thank you for all of your support if you'd like more information please head over to youtube.com and type in red grace media you'll see a whole host of different new apologetics and christ and kingdom episodes that we haven't quite covered yet but will be a good precursor to what we will be covering in future episodes. Yeah. Also, Ryan, don't forget the website's done. So redgracemedia.com is done and there's blog articles and obviously all of our videos from YouTube are there. Uh, So yeah, um, uh, the website's just being worked on trying to make it better, but we're, we're, we're live. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, Pastor Ramos. Have a wonderful evening, and we will see everyone next time for our discussion on Reformed Theology.